Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. My name is Werner. And I'm Jackson. And uh, And Jackson and I are are joined uh, today by Dr. Paul R. Gupta, also known as Bobby Gupta. It's great. It's a great honor to have uh, Bobby join us on our podcast today. And um, our topic today is why biblical theology is vital for the discipling of the church in India. Uh, before we get into our topic, I just want to share a little bit about, about our guest. Uh, Bobby Gupta is the president of Hindustan Bible Institute and College in Chennai, India. He's uh, been the president since 1984. He has a PhD in intercultural studies from Fuller Seminary. Uh, he is uh, the, uh, the husband of Lynette, and uh, they have three adult children. Uh, Bobby spends about 25% of his time in the United States and the other 75% of his time generally in India. Uh, Bobby is also the co-author with... Sherwood Lingenfelter of the book, Breaking Tradition to Accomplish Vision, which is uh, kind of the story of HBI, of Hindustan Bible Institute, and how they have adapted their uh, educational programming uh, for the needs of the great nation of India. So Thank you, Bobby, so much for joining us for this uh, conversation. Uh, By way of introduction, I just want to add some additional background as to why we are talking about this topic, why biblical theology is vital for discipling the church in India. And what we're doing today is we're going to be uh, uh, getting into the, the, the differences between systematic theology and biblical theology. And we will explore why biblical theology is so important for the mission of the church in India. Uh, This conversation is squarely at the intersection of theology and mission, uh, specifically in relation to India, the most populous nation on earth. But I also want to say here that this is not just a podcast for people interested in India. Uh, Most of the major cities of the earth are uh, populated by diverse populations uh, because of globalization and immigration and uh, refugees uh, moving all over the earth, uh, student populations and so on. So we have in our own cities, tremendous diversity, tremendous uh, differences in religious outlook. And so I believe the diversity of India will speak to anyone living in a diverse, uh, richly diverse context. And uh, so, uh, so Bobby, can you share a little bit about uh, your, your family, your, your story, the history of HBI? Uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Warner and Jackson, what a joy it is for me to join with you on a historic and a very important subject as the distinction between systematic theology and biblical theology. And thank you so much for letting me be part of this narrative. And I trust that it'll be a blessing to our listeners. First of all, as you've requested me, let me share with you that the context from which I come. I come from a family that actually my father was a Hindu and became a Christian because he heard the gospel preached on the corner of a street. And, you know, he had been listening to quite a bit of Hinduism, and Hinduism really brought him little or no hope because it says God came to save righteous people and to destroy and unhiliate the unrighteous. But for the first time, he heard just one verse of the word of God and that caught his attention and that was this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners and for the first time it caught his attention because his gods came to save righteous people but here was a God that came to save sinners so I kind of grew up in the home of a family that actually had 
my dad in the context of a Hindu home. But he and my mom came together, and so I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up, my dad started the ministries of Hindustan Bible Institute in 1949. He started the ministries of Hindustan Bible Institute in 1952. Uh, he was a student in the United States, and by then, the doors had already closed, and you know, they almost shut down the organization they started because they said missionaries can't go to India. But, you know, my dad spoke up and said, you can't go, but I can. So in 1952, while he was still a student, he went back to India in the context when India was moving out of colonialism, entering internationalization and going through a process of transformation itself. Very few people really understood that the Indian government wanted us to actually not only nationalize the nation, but every entity of our of the nation. Every institution had to become indigenous and had to become nationalized, which included the church. Yes. And so they were very convinced that if there was going to be an indigenous movement of the church in India, then the Indian leadership had to. I was into the context of that. My dad sensed the call to start a training program for training one Indian to reach another Indian for Jesus Christ. We have been through a long journey of trying to understand what does this really mean? And it's very, very important to the context of our topic because you know, it's easy for us to think that I can start another Bible Institute in India and be relevant and contextual to the people of India. But we soon began to realize all of that we were doing was perpetuating colonialism in the, you know, in the context of Indians doing the work of mission. But it really needed to be contextualized and indigenized. I happened to be trained by a generation that came alive and began to say, we've been doing missions for 200 years. And these 200 years, actually, we have not actually learned to indigenize the message. We have not indigenized the church. We have not developed indigenous national leaders. And the time has come. The doors are closed and there is no more time for us to delay the process. And so we had to go through a very quick learning experience and the first 25 years, I must confess that we actually were very, very colonial in our approach. And that's why I think it's important to make the distinction between biblical theology and systematic theology. Okay, <laughs> let me just uh, insert right here before we get uh, deeply into the conversation between biblical and systematic theology, Bobby, can you just give us a uh, some information about the general profile and diversity of the nation of India. Okay, certainly will. Okay, India is a very complex country, a nation of multiple different religious communities in our world. It's a nation that is the second largest populated country in the world, rapidly moving towards um, a very, very um, becoming the largest populated country in the world. It's also a country of multiple religions where we have many different kinds of religious movements inside the country. The majority of them are Hindus and Muslims and Christians, but you also have the Sikhs and the Jains, the Buddhists, the animists, the atheists, and you name them, they're there inside our country. It's not only uh, complex because of the religious communities, but it's also complex because of the many different languages that are spoken in India and actually part of the actual relationships of the people. Every state in India is made up of a different language community. India is said to have 4,693 different people groups. And all of these various people groups actually represent a contextual, con culturally, distinctively community of believers, peoples. And Bobby, so wait a minute, wait a minute, Bobby. Did you just say India has 4,693 different people groups? That's true. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. So 
I mean, and each has their own like culture and language or is, are you really? Wow. That's, right. yeah. I just want our, our, our listeners need to hear just how complex and diverse India is. And I, I just wanted to take a moment to emphasize that. So well, what about unreached peoples uh, uh, there in, in, in India? What, what can you tell us about the unreached villages, peoples, or unengaged peoples, anything like that? Right. I, I think it's very complex to answer that question, but India has over 600,000 villages. And I think in the last 40 years, there has been greater emphasis on trying to make the gospel accessible to every village and the community in every village of India. And unlike 40 years ago, today, many, many more villages have the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is estimated, and I'm not sure if anybody has the facts, but it is estimated and guesstimated that in the last 35 years, India has added about 700,000 churches in this country. Mm. The majority of those churches have been planted in the villages of India. Now, we still have very, very uh, highly infused ecclesia inside of the cities of India, but nothing close to what has happened in the villages of India. And so mm. there is a large number of villages today but it doesn't mean that every people group has a, a community of at least 5% of its people that are believers of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So when you look at some of those kinds of figures and numbers of trying to define what, what percentage of India's population has been uh, evangelized with the gospel or discipled with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's a very, very difficult number to actually facilitate. But the presence of Jesus Christ has permeated the country far greater than ever before. And I think in this next phase of discipling this nation, what really needs to happen is that we begin to look at India from its unreached peoples, because these peoples are distributed all over the country and in all the villages and in all the cities of our nation. So if you were doing a profile of a city, you would find many people who are within the context of the gospel but never been reached. And at the same time, if you go into the rural parts of our country, you may find them that have never been reached with the gospel, but you may also find the same people who are in the city that are in the villages have access to the gospel. So it doesn't mean that they have been reached because on an average, every village of India would have multiple people groups and they will have multiple economic status and multiple caste groups inside the, inside the city. Do they mean to mingle? No, they don't. And so by the time we think about that, we have to begin to understand the complexity is so great it's not easy for us to actually facilitate a clear statement upon the, those people who have been reached with the gospel, those people who are unreached people, those people who are, you know, unengaged with the gospel and so forth. And the same people in one location that is unengaged may actually have a community of people. So what has been our focus has been let's make the gospel available as many places so that those people in that region can actually cross over and bring the gospel to as many people groups of our country. So, so let's talk about then the uh, Indian church who has that task. Um, the diversity of Indian culture is going to make the following question a little difficult, but as much as you can talk about the Indian church, which <laughs> it's not monolithic, um, Tell us about its strengths and weaknesses at this point um, as we start thinking about how the church it, takes up that mission and, and is a light in Indian culture. Right. I think that's a very important question. Coming out of colonialism, internationalization, we had the traditional and the historic church, and they made up the majority, including the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. But moving out of uh, uh, colonialism into nationalization, what actually happened is we birthed many independent movements inside the country of India. 
And one of the movements that facilitated that process was um, what Jim Montgomery called saturation church planting, discipling the whole nation. And all of a sudden, we moved away from trying to build denominations to actually building church planting movements across the country. And the consequence of that has actually brought a rich church into India. It's very rich because they are very contextual and indigenous to a location than they are to actually a theology or to a presupposition or to a set of uh, assumptions that facilitate a theological understanding. And so what actually ended up happening now is we've got many, many people who have learned to study their Bible, read their Bible, and then just proclaim the truth. And so it's so much, so often misunderstood because people are not within the, the conflicts, uh, the context of a particular denominational theology, but really in the context of scripture. But it's amazing to see. So I think the richness of the church in India lies in the factor that it became indigenous to its community and fewer and fewer traditional historical theological communities influenced us. And the minority became the majority. And so today, when you look at the church in India, the independent movements are the majority around the nation. Mm. Mm. So thank you, Bobby, for that uh, helpful overview of the church in India. And uh, as mentioned already, we're, we're talking about uh, biblical theology as distinct from systematic theology and what this means for discipling the church in India. So I'd like for our conversation to shift now to uh, this, this contrast between systematic theology and biblical theology. So let's, let's start with some definitions. Uh, Jackson, could you begin us with uh, a definition of, of systematic theology? Yeah. Um... The way I put it is systematic theology is a synthesis of biblical teaching according to various topics or subjects. Uh, systematic theology generally starts with uh, our questions that we bring to the text and look for answers. Um, so the starting point, you know, it's hard to define systematic theology without contrasting with something. And so we'll get to biblical theology. But the idea of synthesis categorization and it typically is start starts from and shaped by our questions um that that, that those are some of the characteristics i would put out there okay bobby what would you add to that anything to the the definition or the character of systematic theology well i i think um jackson has put it well is in my mind it's basically uh an understanding of scripture by a group of individuals and people who after the Reformation began a process of trying to define how they interpreted the word of God. And in each context, it was slightly different because their context was little different. If you began in Germany and looked at it from a, a, a Lutheran point of view, it was quite different from those who further went into Sweden, and then later on into England, and then later on into the United States. And I think that each one of them affected by their context and their history and their culture in the context of where they were developing in their understanding of scripture actually defined systematic theology. And they categorized it on topics. They wanted mm. to know everything that the Bible said about God or everything them the Bible said about the church or everything the Bible mm -hmm. said about the second coming. And they put it into these themes and categorized them. And when they put it into those themes and categorized them, they then developed a systematic understanding of theology or God of himself and his revelation to us in our time and our world. But it constantly began to be dynamically transformed due to the people who studied the word, understood it at different times in different ways, got deeper and deeper. And then we have a multiplicity of different 
systems of thinking in systematic theology. Yeah, and I think you draw a good point in highlighting that systematic theology is contextualized theology. And in effect, the systematic conclusions we come to, the categories we choose, the way we order and relate things are all shaped by our context, our culture. And so sometimes people think contextual theology is just some other thing, but there's nothing more actually contextual, contextualized theology than systematic theology. It might be the essence of contextualized theology. So thank you, Jackson, and thank you, uh, thank you, Bobby, for, for that conversation. Now let's uh, do the same thing with biblical theology. And Bobby, let's start with you. How would you define biblical theology as opposed to systematic theology? I, I think the difference that comes into the context of biblical theology as opposed to systematic theology is that the student of biblical theology is looking at the culture and the history and the context of the writer and the author of a particular book and how he views God, how he views the church, how he views it in, um, in the context of God's revelatory information that is coming to us from one generation to the next generation. And God related to us in different times, in different ways. And as the scripture would say here, a little, there, a little, but ultimately we got the whole revelation of God. But, and so I think when you think about biblical theology, I think it's very significant and important because as we look at it, we don't try to impose on it or restrict it from what the author is saying. And so God used an individual and that individual wrote as he understood. And when he wrote and understood, he infused the knowledge that God was consistently and continually revealing to the people. And so when you think of biblical theology, you're looking at the text, you're looking at the context, you're looking at the historical text, and you're looking at the author and his response to the people that he is actually communicating this truth to. And so you have historical information, you have narrative information, you have poetical information. And then when you come into the New Testament, you have some really, really strong logical, philosophical information with writers like the Apostle Paul who wrote and wrote philosophically as well as narratively. And so when you look at the text and you begin to understand the text and interpret the text, you interpret it in the context of their context rather than our context. We apply it to our context, but we interpret it to their context. Mm -hmm. Jackson, what would you add to that? Uh, well, one thing I'd say is that when we're defining biblical theology in contrast to systematic theology, we're not contrasting biblical versus unbiblical, uh, as, as some people may suppose. Uh, these are actually, for those who are not in the nerd world like us, that these are actually you know, academic terms and categories. Uh, so I, to, one of the things I capture with what Bobby said really well is that biblical theology starts with the author's questions. Uh, and so my questions are virtually irrelevant. Now, I'm not saying that they don't affect how I read the text, but I'm saying that our goal ideally in biblical theology, say, what were the questions the author was seeking to address? Um, what was the worldview they had, uh, they were drawing from? And so, uh, uh, and it's also going to be, what your biblical theology is going to limit itself by certain, we use the word pericopes in academia, uh, academia uh, so units of thought. So for example, uh, John chapter 16, or the book of Matthew, or Paul's letters. And so, Everything I'm forming my theology is bound by that unit of thought. And so if I wanted to develop a theology of justification, I would not spend much time in the Gospel of John. I mean, just, there's just not as much there. But I, if I were to develop a theology of the book of, God, of John's Gospel, I would talk a whole lot about new creation, creation imagery. And then, so we well, can have multiple biblical theologies, so to speak, but that doesn't mean they're contradictory because they're, they're focused on different aspects of what the biblical author in that time and place is addressing. So, whereas 
systematic theology starts with our questions on the whole and works in categories that we we determine. Biblical theology starts with the author's questions and the issues that you know they're uh, addressing. Um, and biblical theology is a little more focused on interpretation, whereas systematic theology is focused on the synthesis of our interpretations. I want to share a project with you that demonstrates how the work of Mission One makes communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One walked alongside our partner organization in Nepal to create and implement plans that help the community discover for themselves the transforming power of Jesus. These people went from living in caves with poor sanitary conditions to living in a village in a location with a smaller chance of landslides. Then they created a shared economy centered around goat husbandry. Sanitary conditions have improved and continue to improve. Meanwhile, people have seen the church as a source of blessing. Many began to come to faith, and today, about half of the village are part of the church. This is a glimpse into the vision of Mission One to see every community transform for the glory of God and the honor of all people. To learn more about Mission One projects like this one, visit missionone.org. I, I, I hope that it's helpful. Um, I would I would uh, ask one question related uh, to the conversation here. So, speaking just very practically, uh, I think many systematic theologies begin with what category? Is would it be the doctrine of God? Uh, yeah, doctrine of God, uh, the doctrine of Scripture are, are are frequently two of the you know the most immediate you know things. But I'll give you an example of how a systematic theology versus biblical theological difference, okay? Okay, when great. When a systematic theologian talks about uh, the Son of God title, the emphasis usually refers to the, the nature of Christ, he, deity versus human, okay? These are questions that were especially emphasized and discussed in the early church as, it interact, as the church interacted with Greek culture because there was this tension between the body and the spirit and so forth. And so therefore, how can... How can this God have skin, you know, skin and bone and so forth? And you know, there are these kind of questions, right? Well, when you start reading biblical theologians, you and then you talk about say Son of God, there would be far more emphasis of on the fact that in the ancient world, Son of God was a a title routinely given to kings, and so uh, any Caesar is called God's son. Any king would be called the son of their God. And so it was as much a royal uh, title. Caesar wasn't saying, hey, I belong to some trinity, you know. You know, so uh, you have to think through how would the original people who use these terms have used it? So a biblical theologian would uh, notice that in, you know, 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, God says that David's offspring will be his son. and He he, will be a father to him and he will be a son to to the father, to, to God. this idea of God's son, offspring, David's offspring would be God's son, that that all feeds into this royal motif. So, you see, it doesn't mean that one has to be right and one has to be wrong, but there's, uh, the biblical theology is natural home is within a narrative. Uh, it's far more narrative rather than in abstract categories. Um, so, uh, uh, so and, and, and just to be fair, you, these are not nicely split. Okay, biblical theologians are influenced by the systematic theology, right? And systematic theologians are trying to do good biblical theology in the process. But these are still, in general, different kind of emphases and approaches. Okay. So let's bring this back to the uh, great nation of India. Uh, Bobby, I remember you telling me one time how you discovered this great contrast between systematic theology and biblical theology for discipling the nation of India, why it made a difference. Can you just share with us um, how this became real to you and why you are passionate about this subject today? I think that's a very, very um, important question for missiological thinking. Because when we take systematic theology, we take it in the context of our theological presuppositions. 
and recreate. And within the context of our presuppositions, there is consistency in our interpretation of scripture. But then we come to the conclusion that because it is consistent with our uh, assumptions, worldviews, presuppositions, and everything else, everybody else is wrong. And so we produce methodologies that result from the thought that I'm right, they're wrong, and so let's actually facilitate it. But the biggest challenge I discovered when I went back to India is not even the systematic theology that presents the problem. It creates a problem, but it presents a big problem, a different problem. It's because systematic theology, the Bible, is linear. But my culture and the people in my land are cyclical thinkers. So, for example, if I were to ask a simple question, like I was trained to ask when I was trying to do evangelism, like if you were to die today and you were to stand in the presence of God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? If I shared that question with my people in our context where life is cyclical in nature, they looked at me, what are you thinking about? And they began to make me realize that I was asking a question that was totally and completely irrelevant because for them, I know I'm not worthy to go into God's presence, but I'm going to one day when I've been born again and again and again and again, and at some lifetime, I will become acceptable to God. And when that happens, I will become part of the cosmic whole. Man, by that time, he is already burning in eternity for hell. And I began to ask myself the question, how do I actually shift from this propositional thinking to something that will bring the message of the gospel alive? And that's when I began to realize that I cannot be stuck with my systematic thinking as the only solution. I've got to come up with other propositions that will help people to come to the embracement of God's word. You know, and I think, and I really think it's so important that Jackson honed in on two very important questions. People, who is God? How do I understand him? But um, what about his revelation? Is it worth really putting my trust in that revelation? And while you ask anybody in my country, what do you think about the Bible? They'll all say, it's a holy book. But will they embrace it and practice it? Not until they have built a relationship with God. But in order to build that relationship, I had to move away from my systematic thinking, my linear thinking, and build a relationship so that I can actually facilitate that process. And so that they could actually embrace the truth because they have come into a relationship with Christ. So Thank when you, I go ahead. Yeah. So what you have just shared with us uh, is a contrast between linear thinking that we in the West are so familiar with and which is reflected in systematic theology and in many ways in scripture. And you have contrasted that with um, cyclical thinking as part of the Hindu worldview, uh, something like 70% of India's billion people are, are Hindu. And so these, these two worldviews are bumping up against each other, right? And you're saying we shouldn't impose a linear way of thinking on the Hindu who thinks in a cyclical way. Is that what you're saying? Or are you saying that uh, there is in the Bible a way of looking at uh, scripture in a cyclical way, which may resonate better with Hindus. Uh, can, you, can you respond to, to, to those questions? Those are the questions that are uh, bumping around in my own brain. Okay. Actually, I think the Bible is absolutely linear. There is no question about the Bible being linear. It says it is appointed unto man once to live, then to die, and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But if I expect somebody who doesn't embrace that and try to bring them into an embracement of that truth, 
I'll probably run into a wall that I can never break. I've got to get them to a place where they rise up beyond the proposition that it is only linear. I have to get them to the place where they will actually say to myself, I'm willing to try and experience existentially instead of propositionally go from moving from proposition to the existential. And when I experience something, then there, and I trust that this actually has a significant place in my understanding of truth, then I move into the absolute linear thinking without a problem. But if I have not been able to experience God or taste and see that the Lord is good or be able to actually say, how do I know this is truth? Then that individual will never come to that place at any point in time to embrace the factor. But if I move from the existential to the fact that there is truth based upon this true and living God, that if you want to learn about it, let's study it together. And then when they study it and they come to the realization, you know, that the more I study it, the more I come to the realization, I can put my trust in this God. I can put my trust in this God. And the more they trust in God and more I bring solutions from the word of God rather than from my theology, rather than from my presuppositions, but rather from the word of God, take them back to the word, take them back to the word and let that word answer them, the more they're going to embrace the truths found in the word of God. And so I have moved away even from using the word Christianity consciously. Because if I use Christianity, it's viewed as a religion. And then we've got one religion against the other. But I prefer to actually have people understand it from truth so that if you have a relationship with the God of the Bible, you can embrace his truth. And when you embrace his truth, then you have transformation that takes place in your life. And then that transformation continuously leads you for eternity and you become light in the midst of darkness. So, so let me throw out a, an idea of how we can, you, you're emphasizing the contrast between propositional versus experiential. Let me go back to the cyclical versus linear and see what you think about this. Yeah, this the Bible certainly tells a linear story in history, you know, sequence and whatnot. Within the narrative of the Bible, the way it's put together and the way the story is told, uh, biblical theologians, we're talking about biblical theology here, will often notice these cycles in the story, these things, these patterns of telling the story that repeat, whether it be uh, the creation account is kind of, again, retold in Abraham's, or no, that the flood story, and then the Abraham's life story, and the life of Israel, and then that typology, that kind of is reapplied again in the life of Christ, okay? So there's a cyclical storytelling of the Bible, which is divinely interpreted history, you know, explaining meaning here. There seems to be in that, which is some of the insights you get from biblical theology, a way in which you can bring together this linearity in history, but yet these patterns of God working and these patterns of people and civilizations working. Does that strike a chord in, with you as we try to think about how these go here? I, I, I think that the redemptive story of their salvation has to enter into from their perspective, okay? Of how can I enter this journey? But once they enter the journey, they will see the cycles. In mm -hmm. fact, when I, when I study the Bible with them, they see the cycles. For them to be born again is not an issue at all. But for them to understand what Jesus is saying to be born again is very, very different. And so then when they come to that place where I can embrace the words of Jesus Christ, then to be born again, I understand it from his perspective. And so I think that's why it's so significant and important that we keep our theological presuppositions in, away from the context of our evangelistic efforts mm -hmm. to actually disciple people. And if we disciple them in the word, then we automatically become biblical theology.
Yeah. So it seems to me that without without embracing, you know, reincarnation and, and all of that, that if you have at least some inclination to cyclical thinking, it could really set you up to be a good biblical theologian. Like a, appreciate biblical theology, understand what God, how God is revealing himself in his word. So, uh, yeah, I see all this is valuable for contextualization as well. If you think about ministry in, mm-hmm. so, you know, in, 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 in India, uh, Werner, you, you had talked about, you had wanted to talk about contextualization and biblical theology that link. I do, but I want to ask one quick question of Bobby before we move on to contextualization. And that is, can you, Bobby, please give us just a short story of how someone from a Hindu context experientially uh, was uh, touched by God and as a result of that experience uh, became a follower of Christ and then engaged with the Word of God? I just want our hearers to understand. I know you have hundreds of stories, but we just want to hear one. I, I want to put one in the context that is not healing, okay? I'd like to put one in a context of one of our disciples that we were discipling in New Calvary Church in Chennai. She happened to fall in love with one of the boys in our church. And because of that, you know, our church was saying, no, she's a Hindu. You can't actually let her be part of this relationship. And then they've tried to talk the guy out of it. He refused to accept it. So they said, Bobby, what can you do? So I asked them, how can I help you guys? And, you know, they brought all these different individuals who were from different faiths. But this one girl was amazing. She came in and we were studying not the Bible, but the purpose-driven book, Life. And she read that book over and over and over again. And it began to make her sense. There is some purpose in my life. And she began to come and we used to begin to start working. And one day I said, you know, she said, you know, help me understand. How can I really have the same relationship that you have with Jesus? And then I said, you just have to talk to him. You have to relate to him. He is here for us to relate with. And so she says, but I don't understand how that is. So I said, tell me something that we can pray about so that you can begin to understand how God really cares about your life. And so she began to share stuff. And then, you know, we would pray about it. But one day she came up with this massive problem. And that problem was her boss and herself couldn't get along together. And she was about ready to rip him apart and have a really hard time with him. And since she came and she said, at that time she used to call me uncle, but later on she began to call me dad. But originally she would say, uncle, can you help me understand how I can really gain victory over this conflict that we're having? And I said, I'm not going to help you. I could probably give you some solutions, but let's ask God to help you. And so we began to pray about it. And she began to pray about it. And I taught her to pray about it. And all of a sudden, this great big conflict turned into a great big relationship. And then she related it to that prayer. And she related it to that time. And so it moved into an existential experience for her to see how God actually broke into her circumstance. And God began to do it. And that was the beginning of that journey with her with God and from there on she really began to look at the word she couldn't take a bible to her house and so she would come on Saturday she would read all morning she would write questions and we would answer those questions with her but when it got out of the text of what we assigned we would ask tell her look we want you to read this passage. You want to read this passage. And she would say, you know, my dad wants me to go to the temple. Is it wrong for me to go to the temple? I said, what is a temple? And she said, well, it's just a piece of rock, right? And you can go to a temple and so and so forth. I began to talk to her and she began to see it as not something that I was against her doing, but really understanding who God is. So I said, could you go in there and pray for your mom and dad? so that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Could you go in and pray against these forces of darkness so that these forces will go away? 
And you know, she would go into the temple. I never told her, don't go to the temple. If I told her, I'd cut myself off. But by really relating her to the word of God and letting God's word actually help her to say what she should do and what she cannot do, today, she, even though, you know, the relationship between that girl and that boy ended and she ended up marrying a Hindu because her parents made a decision to get her married to a Hindu. You know what? Till today, she's bringing up her children up in the way of the word of God. She reads her Bible. She has a relationship with Christ. And it's a dynamic, powerful relationship. And I know when we get to heaven, she and her kids are going to be there. I don't know about her husband, but I do know about her and her children. So actually moving into that and allowing the existential to be tested through prayer. And every time they tested and every time they prayed, then I even this girl said it to me, I prayed to my gods and they answered nothing. But every time I prayed to Jesus, God answered me. And uh, that made the difference. So she was able to move from the existential and then gradually be discipled into the propositional. So she now knows it's pointed unto man, wants to live and to die and stand before the judgments of the Christ. Thank you, Bobby. That was great. Uh, Jackson, uh, you have a book that you've written a few years ago called One Gospel for All Nations. And you mention repeatedly in your book the vital connection between effective gospel contextualization and biblical theology. You say that uh, meaningful contextualization begins with biblical theology and not simply systematic theology. Can you uh, uh, tell us about that? Uh, help our listeners to understand what you mean by that. Yeah, because systematic theology is the product, is the end product of any contextualized theology. Um, and so if you contextualize a systematic theology, you are contextualizing a contextualization. So it's you know layers of contextualization. Whereas contextualization actually always starts at the moment of interpretation. Uh, and so we just need to take own, own that and be serious with it. But if we're focusing on the author's questions in the original context and the logic of a text and all the storied elements that are there, we uh, at least hold ourselves accountable and put ourselves in check so that our questions and our assumptions don't automatically get crammed into the, into the text. Uh, and it's only then that you can bring God's word more directly in line with the context and the culture that we're serving in without having to do this translation into one systematic theology and then a retranslation into some cultural context, right? So systematic theology should actually be in the result of bringing biblical theology into conversation with the cultural context. And then that leads to these various answers and categories that people are asking questions about. And that's just naturally ends up being your systematic theology. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that's I think that's helpful. Um, I, I'd like to get some examples of what you mean. Is there a way that you can uh, take this abstract uh, description and uh, put some flesh on those bones? Sure. I, one of the things I think about is the idea of God's righteousness. In an average systematic theology book, uh, people will talk about God's righteousness as because it's the Western influence of people writing these books. We'll focus a whole lot on the punitive aspects of God's righteousness. That is, God punishing sin, God's wrath against evil, so forth and so on. And there's plenty of truth that God is righteous, and therefore he wants to get rid of injustice in the world. However, when you read biblical theology and, and you see the way the biblical authors tended to talk about God's righteousness, you're looking at you know 80%, 85 90% of the time when God's righteousness is referred to, it's a very positive thing, talking about God's faithfulness him keeping his promises. Now, a part of that promise keeping is the fact that he will judge and condemn his enemies, you know, those who are getting in the way of his promise keeping. So it's not that it's one or the other. 
But the emphasis in scripture is overwhelmingly on this idea of God setting things right, bringing things to whole and harmony like he wants it to be. Okay, this positive saving dynamic, right? Well, that comes really relevant when you are in various contexts where um, people are longing for God to set things right. They're not merely longing for God, go kill those people, go destroy those people. But he wants... It's not just the eradication of bad things, but the setting up of what is good, fulfilling his promises and purposes. And I've shared with, you know, when I was in China and I was sharing with some mountain people, some unreached peoples, and they were talking about how they were oppressed by the majority of people in all these various ways. I emphasized this aspect of God's righteousness. And it was the first time in many, many, many visits that they actually pay attention to anything that we were saying. Because they all heard it before from outsiders uh, sharing the gospel. But all of a sudden, the leader of the home started inviting everybody around and said, here, listen to what he's saying. Can you believe this? Uh, and all I was doing was basically preaching the Old Testament understanding of God's righteousness as him setting the world to right. You know, uh, bringing about justice in its most robust sense, not merely in its punitive sense. So there's an example of if you're doing biblical theology it actually comes in closer contact with so many cultural issues and questions than if we started with the assumption of one type of systemized theology that emphasizes one as one narrow aspect of God's righteousness. Bobby, yes, what sir. Would you add to that? <laughs> uh, Jackson is saying effective gospel contextualization begins with biblical theology. Why is this so crucial for the Indian context? And by the way, I really appreciate, uh, Jackson, you putting flesh on the bones for us there. That was very helpful. So, Bobby, what's, what's uh, running through your mind right now? I, I think the important thing is every culture, every community, every generation are going through a process. And... It's in the context of their culture that we see darkness and light. We see right and wrong. What may be interpreted in one context may be different from another context. So a simple thing like, you know, the Western ideology of the law that you have in the West may be quite different from the community in a very religious community. And those, those laws may be so different. So the righteousness in that context will be viewed and understood differently. But if you try to tell them this is what is righteous, they will never understand it. However, if it became clear in our own mind that what God is trying to do from the biblical perspective is to see what is in conflict with God's truth, God's revelation, when the people understand it in, the, in their own context, because the Bible is now being interpreted and applied from their context, then I think we begin to see true transformation. And I think the, the, the closing statement of Jackson is that if righteousness is going to be revealed, if truth is going to be revealed, it has to be because communities are being transformed and the righteousness of God is being revealed through them. And so I think that when we use systematic theology, sometimes we miss that aspect of the application of God's revelation to our lives personally. When we begin to think in terms of seasons of times and rationale that support our presuppositions and miss the whole message of God. While God's message is, I want to be reconciled to you, I want to... You know, and you know, energize you and help you to be come alive because you're dead in your trespasses and sin. But I can bring you and make you alive in Christ Jesus because I know what's holding you back from it. But everything is very conditional to that individual's challenges. What is blindness to us in the West may be different to somebody in the East. And so what we've got to do is to constantly look at the word of God and allow the word of God to help us to explain to people what is truly dark inside of their culture and allow that part of their culture to be transformed. And when that is transformed, the righteousness of God comes alive. 
And I would add to that, uh, every culture has certain insights uh, that naturally have harmonized with aspects of scripture that give us a unique opportunity to learn from them, that culture, that other cultures may not have. So uh, value on the collective and the group and honor and purity. Some people will read scripture and they can draw up things and notice things in scripture that other people never would. So both the positive and the negative culture. Absolutely. I think the cross-pollination of both those things that take place hybrids us to a greater revelation of who God is. Let's move on now to uh, the co a conversation about education and training of pastors and missionaries in India, uh, equipping the indigenous uh, leadership of India. Uh, Bobby, as you have discussed uh, biblical theology, systematic theology, and the difference the differences of these uh, approaches in India, what have you seen is the range of response? Is there, is there resistance to uh, a biblical theology approach sometimes? Is there enthusiastic acceptance? What have you seen? What have you experienced and heard? I think from the historical and traditional church, there's a great resistance to, to biblical theology. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because they are all based on um, hypothesis and uh, uh, for their interpretation of scripture. So if you take somebody who's dispensational, he wants to use all his dispensational uh, hermeneutics to actually interpret the text. If you've got somebody who is from a reformed background, he wants to use all of those principles to interpret his text. And if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you really want the Pope to interpret it for you. But when you come into the context of those who are away and looking at the Bible and studying the Bible for themselves, you really have a very interesting polarity that is taking place. And I think if I may answer that question, I hope I'm not going ahead of myself, okay? But when you think of it from a formal context, you know, HBI is training people in a formal, as well as in a non-formal, as well as in an informal and a cross-cultural context, and also in a generational context. And all of these different contexts helps us to realize each one can actually bring something to the table. And I think it can be put in two different separate categories. The first category I'd like to put is into the theological education category, because truly, you know, when I was going to seminary, they told us, you don't need Greek, you don't need Hebrew, you don't need anything. You know, we're going to teach you how to interpret scripture without studying Greek and Hebrew, because you can go to the commentaries and you can learn from the commentaries. And all of them have information that you can learn and study from there and facilitate. Well, it actually, what I ended up becoming is a Westerner because I was looking at all the Western commentaries who interpreted it from their hypothesis and to their challenges and into their context. So when I came back to India, I was a strong cessationist. I believed that there was no such a thing as, you know, the gifts and God working through gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit of God and so forth. And it was very different from watching these people really living their lives out under the power of the Holy Spirit of God and actually manifesting incredible in, in things that God was doing in our culture to bring people to himself in our country all over the place. People were bringing people to them, to the Lord, because God was at work and my theology was in conflict with their theology and I didn't build a relationship with them. And so I began to ask the Lord, Lord, help me understand and, you know, then I realized true theological education has to go back to the original text. And when we began to look at the original text and then begin to look at the translations in the text, we began to see such wide disparity between the text because the translator had interpreted the text and not actually translated the text. <laughs> and consequently, the interpretation led to a theology and the theology led to presuppositions that were not in the scripture. And so we began to... If I could, if I could just interrupt here, 
uh, Bobby. And I, I want to point this to you, Jackson. You have said on many occasions, uh, contextualization begins with interpretation, right? And and so what you are just expressing here, Bobby, is that the interpretations of the Bible that you were using all had already been contextualized for the interpreters of those Bibles who were Westerners, right? Who had a particular set of com theological commitments or you know, particular set of Western values. And uh, uh, so I, I love the practical example here. Do you want to add something here, uh, Jason? Yeah, 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 Bob, I want to hear if this, the same problem or challenge I found in China, if, if it happens in India, because it sounds like you're kind of describing this. One of the biggest challenges of, of a, having a, a Chinese developing or fostering Chinese ways of theologizing and thinking and whatnot Chinese biblical theologies was the fact that they so respected tradition and that and Western tradition has, you know, is a carrier of so much of Christian tradition. And so people would just wholesale go, well, this is what the tradition is. And so people become Western theological thinkers. Uh, and not to say that Western theology is bad or wrong or whatever else, and, but, but that it just shuts off any sort of thinking with, their own cultural lens that may provide new insights. And so therefore you don't have so, any kind of indigenizing theology. Uh, and so ironically, Chinese culture was one of the biggest obstacles to fostering Chinese theology, <laughs> ironically. Is there any of that phenomenon in, in India? I think um, in the Christian tradition, yes. Because we, you know, we had 200 years of Western theology put into the church in India. And so we had all those denominational presuppositions that were forced into our thinking. And so for an Indian who's outside of that, he can't relate to that. And so only by sub resubjecting himself to these thinkings, can he actually interpret scripture the way his church interprets it. So there was that, that was, it was the 200 years of missional think uh, theological thinking that subjected us and that told us that was right. But slowly as scholarship began to evolve and people began to get away from the traditional thinking and began to study not only the original language in its historical set, but also in all other aspects, you know, there's the historical interpretation of the text, but then there is the linguistic interpretation of the text. And we get into the linguistic interpretation and they're really understanding the real meaning within the context of that history and time and putting the grammatical structures together, understanding what are the exception to those structures. New meaning began to come alive and the limitations of their language and the English language began to become clear because you don't have some of those structures. You don't have an aorist tense. You don't have some of these things that you have in the, in the Hebrew and the Greek. And so we had to come to the place in our lives where we had to begin to say, okay, now it's important for us to understand why we need to look at the original text. And then now they're beginning to say, if when we look at the original text, we see the real, reality of how we can contextualize. But the traditional churches, the Orthodox churches, the churches that were very historic, they, they don't like for us to go to the original text. But the Indian who's becoming a follower of Jesus Christ for the first time from the from a Hindu or a Muslim background, when you give them the opportunity study the word from its original text, they grab onto it and they're excited. So our culture has not inhibited it. But you're right. When people are traditional in their culture, they can have the thing, we cannot break tradition. And so, but because those traditions that um, they don't know, we can introduce them into uh, you know, looking at the text from its original text. Well, it sounds like uh, what we have landed on here, 
is a recognition that theological education needs to include the study of Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> and <laughs> we, have, we, have, we had a couple episodes in that last season. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that that is really essential for healthy contextualization for the cultures where uh, the Bible is being uh, uh, given and introduced and the message of Christ is being uh, introduced. Uh, we are really out of time now, but I want to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Gupta, for joining us for this conversation. Uh, we at Mission One have been in partnership with, with you and Hindustan Bible Institute for about 30 years now, and uh, we're so honored to uh, be engaged in uh, the discipling of the nation of India uh, through partnership in the gospel. So we praise God for you, and thank you so much, uh, Bobby, for contributing such rich uh, uh, insights and, and from your experience in India uh, for our podcast today. So uh, this is uh, Werner and Jackson signing off from Doing Theology Thinking Mission. Uh -huh.